survived another year. Not only that, but we made it to the final episode of PH5. Um, final one of the year, the season, or whatever you want to call it. You can't get rid of me that easily, folks. Um, welcome! Wow! Uh... Do you feel my energy? Do you feel the excitement coursing through my veins right now? Hope so. Um, this is part two of the PH 5x5, as I've called it. And today, we are going to conclude the rundown of the top 25 albums of 2021. Did you guys enjoy the last episode? Uh, oh yeah, we're also gonna talk about the remaining songs of the year list. We kind of got some lists within lists, you know, intertwining lists, you know, like a list rope going on right now. It's a lot of fun, it's confusing, and we're having a blast. So, I'm feeling great. Um, just ate a cookie. Pretty good stuff. Uh, I just beat the new Metroid game. That shit was hard as fuck. Uh, but not too hard for you, boy. I got this shit. I'm just kind of chilling out now. You know, a few days before Christmas. Nothing really going on. Learning about a job that might be happening that I might get. Um... If that doesn't happen, that's okay, because I still have my other job. You know, like, the vibes are immaculate right now, which is weird, because, like, how often could anyone say that about this year, or last year, or really any time at all? Uh, so, you know, I'm just grateful to be here, be alive, be healthy. Um, I haven't caught in COVID yet, but, I mean... You know, we'll see how much longer that lasts. I have my booster shot booked for just a few days from now. You know, like, things could be a lot worse. They could certainly be so much better, but you know what? They could be a lot worse. Um, and now I get to finally talk about my absolute favorite records of the year. You know, making these stupid year-end lists has been a pretty big hobby of mine for like something ridiculous like 12 or 13 years now it's just really important to me for some reason you know I know it doesn't matter I know no one gives a shit but I give a shit and it just I don't know I love music and again structuring these lists one after the other this album being better than that one. Who's to say? It's impossible to say. But this is what I liked the most from this year. And this is the order that I've decided I liked it the most in. So, before we jump into the top 10, let's do a quick rundown of the 25 to 11 records that I talked about last podcast. All right? So at number 25, we had Ad Nauseam with Imperative Imperceptible Impulse. 
At number 24, we had Gas with Der Langmarsch. Sorry, Germany. Um, at number 23, we had Halsey with If I Can't Have Love, I Want Power. Apparently that movie's like coming to streaming or just came to streaming. Can't wait to check that out finally. Number 22, we had Injury Reserve with By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Number 21, Spectral Wound with A Diabolic Thirst. Number 20, Taking Meds with Terrible News from Wonderful Men. Number 19, we had Fiddlehead with Between the Richness. Number 18, Succumb with XXI. Number 17, Spelling with The Turning Wheel. Number 16, Doja Cat with Planet Her. Number 15, Low with Hey What. Number 14, Pierre Bourne with The Life of Pier 5. Number 13, Grouper with Shade. Number 12, Kowloon Walled City, Piecework. And number 11, Turnstile, Glow On. If you recall, I also ran through my first bunch of favorite songs of the year. So at number five, we had Unborn by Eyelet. At number four, we had Average Death by The Armed. And at number three, we had Need to Know by Doja Cat. Wow. Crazy how I just summed that all up in about two or three minutes. And you guys had to sit through about 80 minutes the last podcast when I could have easily just listed it out like that. But I know you guys want that context, right? That's what you listen for. If you wanted to just read a listing of albums, you would go to, you know, listofalbums.com. Not PH5 Podcast. So let's jump in and finally get down to the top 10. You know, all those other records I spoke about last podcast, I, I certainly love them. But these are the records from this year that really, really were special to me. And I hold very dearly to my heart. It's like the top 25 to 11 is kind of like the honorable mentions. But this is the good stuff right here. This is what really matters, you know? That other stuff is G League. This is pure NBA. So, let's get into it, and again, as I always say, because I mean it, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate each and every second that each and every one of you spends listening to me rambling about this shit in my bedroom. Um, we just cracked over 500 listens just a few days ago, which is crazy to me, uh, that's awesome. Maybe next year we can get to 600 listens. That's the goal. You gotta set lofty goals for yourselves, folks. So, without any further adieu, let's do this shit. PH5 Top 10 of 2021. Okay, so coming in at number 10, we have Dean Blunt with Black Metal 2. Um, yeah, this is not a black metal album, of course. 
Yeah, that Dean Blunt and his uh, subversion of expectations, am I right? Uh, on that note of subverting expectations, he does kind of his own bit of subversion here on this record because this is actually a surprisingly coherent and catchy album, especially in terms of Dean Blunt's usual output. Uh, he's kind of known as a kind of a mischievous scamp, you know, in the music scene. Um, just, just as eager to release, you know, 20 minute long noise dirges as he is releasing somewhat straightforward hip-hop songs or, you know, somewhat straightforward rock songs. You're just as likely to hear an ambient piece as you are to hear, you know, some nice indie pop adjacent stuff. So, you kind of never really know what you're going to get with Dean Blunt. Um, and the fact that this is a sequel album is really interesting because it's almost as though he went into creating this record with a mindset of, okay, instead of kind of making whatever the fuck I want to for this record, as I've done with the last God knows how many albums this guy's put out, the fact that this is a sequel to the original black metal makes makes me think that there was a lot of intent behind this record, and he wanted to kind of maintain some thematic qualities between the first one and this one, whether that be subject matter or, you know, musicality, instrumentation, whatever it might be. And you definitely hear a lot of that. Uh, the first black metal was, again, not black metal, but it had a lot of similar qualities to this one. A lot more drawn out passages, a lot spacier, and just kind of generally longer. This is a pretty short, quick and to the point record. Um, it's only about 20, 25 minutes long or so, which we'll see is kind of a recurring theme on this top 10. And the songs are very compact. It's it, not a lot of them kind of meander really at all. Uh, they get right to the point. He comes in, he does his thing, um, along with his superb guest vocalist and guitar player, and then they leave, you know, not really trying to stick around any longer than they need to. And this kind of focus on concision results in some of the easiest listening music of this guy's entire career. This is probably as close to, we'll say, pop music as this guy is ever going to make. That's my guess anyway. Uh, we were not going to hear anything as accessible as Black Metal 2 from this guy anytime soon, because knowing him, he's just going to pivot in a completely different direction and release, like, I don't know, like a grindcore album next, next year or something like that. But all the songs on here are immediate, they have kind of recognizable melodies, and again, it all comes to head with that last song, which has got to be one of the pinnacles of his entire career, um, The Rot, which is basically almost a straight-up kind of dream pop song. Um, you know, Dean Blunt loves to play with genre a lot. And I'd say the number one genre he kind of touches on on this one is Britpop. You know, seeing how the man is from the UK and is always 
kind of toying with the UK in some way or another, you know, see the kind of grime-inspired Baby Father project or, you know, any of his early releases that were steeped in, you know, garage and, and other kind of UK-specific electronic music genres, it makes sense to me that he would eventually make his way to Britpop because it's another staple of the UK music scene. And again, it has he has his own wry take on it all. Uh, he has his classic half-sung, half-spoken vocals, which are just severely out of tune on purpose. Um, you know, the, the guitars and whatnot have this kind of off-kilter, warbly feeling to them that, you know, it just doesn't sit quite right, but, you know, in the best way possible. Because, again, this is still Dean Blunt that we're talking about here. But, again, it's, it's, it's probably as close to a collection of pop songs as he's going to release. And the whole thing just sounds absolutely beautiful. You know, he's never really been the kind of guy to set out to make intentionally beautiful music. But that's, that's what we get here with this album. And... I mean, the guy just can't miss, whether he's making the most abrasive music you can imagine, whether he's making these kind of silly interpretations of hip-hop, or, or whether he's making this kind of straight-faced, acoustic guitar-laden music, as with Black Metal 2, he's, he, he hits it out of the park every time, and this is just yet another example of Dean Blunt's absolute musical genius. So I'm excited to see what he does next, because I'm sure it'll sound absolutely nothing like this. There's really no way of knowing what he'll do next. He probably doesn't even know. But for now, um, this was a record that absolutely ruled my summer, despite its, of course, very dark tone throughout the whole thing. And yeah, just another testament to Dean Blunt being one of the most vital musicians of our time. So, coming in at number 10, we have Dean Blunt, Black Metal 2. Okay, number 9. Uh, last podcast I mentioned that there were a few albums on my top 25 that I hadn't touched on at all throughout the entire podcast. Um, the first one was the Gas album, because again, that came out just this month, uh, just a few weeks ago, so I haven't been able to kind of recap it yet. And the other one, which is appearing right now, thing is it came out last year. This album actually dropped on Christmas Day of last year. Oh, I should probably tell what the album is. <laughs> so coming in at number nine, we have... Playboy Cardi with Whole Lot of Red. Anyway, back to the story. So it's Christmas Day, and the album dropped after literally years of delays and speculation over when this record would come out, if it ever was going to come out, if it even existed. Uh, he's kind of an elusive guy, that uh, Mr. Cardi. And it came, and I'm sure... Myself, just like millions of people across the globe, you know, Christmas morning, yeah, 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 you know, do the gift shit, quickly get that over with, and then kind of sneak away to listen to the album. Because to say this is 
or sorry, was an anticipated release is, uh, doesn't even come close to cutting it. The, uh, the amount of fervor that Playboy Cardi kind of creates in the hip-hop community at this point is, is pretty wild. He's got quite the status up there right now. So it dropped, and I remember putting it on and just being like, what the fuck is this? Um, I still think that when I put it on, but it's more positive now. But at first, I remember listening to it and being like, like, is this garbage? Like, what the hell is going on here? And then I realized I've kind of had the exact same reaction to every single one of his records. Um, his debut uh, self-titled record, I couldn't stand it for the first little while, and then eventually I kind of couldn't stop thinking about it, and I listened to it all the time, and it just kind of clicked. Like, I finally understood it. And Die Lit, admittedly, was a little bit easier and, and quicker to, you know, kind of come into my rotation and, and, and for me to realize how genius it was. And kind of the same thing happened with this record, because this is a weird, weird fucking album. Um, but that's just the genius of Playboy Cardi. I mean, he could have easily released a Die Lit 2, and everyone would have loved it. He would have been so successful about it. And, you know, wins all around for everyone, because that was already an incredibly groundbreaking record. But for him to just release this thing instead? I mean, I remember thinking, is this a joke initially? Like, what? I guess if you haven't heard it, I should probably try to explain what this thing sounds like. Um, so, oh God, how do you even explain what this sounds like? It's like this weird, like, Dark wave, noir, like metal, punk infused, just dystopian kind of nightmare. Um, no one in the hip hop game is making music, anything remotely close to this right now. But, and I'll talk about this a little bit later too, just wait, because that will absolutely change. Anyway, so. Instead of doing his, you know, extremely popular You know, the Playboy Cardi voice um, Some songs feature that, but he's instead replaced it with this Kind of raspy, shouting, like Sounds like he's done, like, four hits of meth and is coming down and is just destroying his throat and it and this has always been a guy where vocal inflections have been in a very important part of the music process you know a, a lot of his songs especially on early records like the self-titled one barely even really have any lyrics and it's mostly just him kind of ad-libbing and making weird noises throughout the whole thing yeah well that just this record takes that to a completely new level um and the music to match with it too is just like abrasive and, and really the only word I can really think to describe this album off top is 
misanthropic. Like, the whole time he's, he's kind of, if you want to call it rapping, rapping about how he doesn't trust anyone, and, you know, how he's, you know, fucking all these bitches all the time and stuff, but not in, like, the braggadocious way that a lot of other rappers do, but almost in, like, a pained, really tortured way. Um, you know, non-stop references to drug use and drug abuse and just his voice throughout the whole thing. Like, he sounds really, really, really fucked up. So, yeah, it was initially quite a baffling listen. I mean, especially on Christmas morning. Um, but as time went on, it, it the genius of it all really struck me. I mean, once again, he's taken the genre and just gone in a completely left field direction with it. And, you know, all of his imitators, of which there are so, so many, all of his haters, all, everyone is just kind of left in its wake being like, what the fuck did I just listen to? What the hell was that? And this is a record that I really see being extremely influential in the next few years. Like, just wait, okay? I mean, we've already kind of seen the pop-punk kind of infused hip-hop takeover lately, but this is gonna add a new element into it completely, where you're gonna be seeing rappers do things with their voices that they didn't even know were possible, because that's just how groundbreaking and how cutting-edge the music on this record is. Um, is Playboy Cardi a good person? <laughs> I mean, as we've learned over this year, not, maybe, maybe not, okay? Um, and you can hear that on this record, and he certainly makes no efforts to hide that. So, in a weird way, you almost have to respect him leaning full into him, his whole, like, yeah, I'm a demonic piece of shit, and this is just who I am, and you're gonna love it or you're gonna hate it. Uh, on the note of demonic pieces of shit, um, I find it really funny too that Kanye West of all people executive produces album, but like, I mean the cover art is literally like the word red blood splattered across a really really contrasted black and white image of Cardi wearing an upside down cross and he makes mention of being a vampire many times throughout the album and it's just like he just leans right in the whole demonicness of it all. And like, Kanye, man, you're Mr. Jesus, I thought. What are you, what are you doing to attach your name to this thing? But hey, if I'm being honest, um, this is probably the best piece of music that Kanye's been attached to in years. So, good for him, I guess? Anyway, I'm sorry if uh, I've, I've kind of struggled to really articulate my thoughts and feelings toward this album because even a year later, I'm still trying to grasp it and I'm still trying to like entirely wrap my head around the sounds and, and the themes and, and, and everything that he's trying to do with this record. But, you know, it's intrigued me in, in a way that very few albums have this year or any year. And I don't expect that to stop anytime soon. So. Coming in at number nine, we have Playboy Cardi with Whole Lot of Red. And yes, I know it did come out last year. Shut up. 
Okay. So. Oh, sorry guys. Burp. Um, coming in at number eight, we have Portrayal of Guilt with We're Always Alone. Ooh, bleak stuff, huh? Certainly feels like that as we enter lockdown number 40 fucking 100. Um, so this is... When I talked about this record back in the day, back in January when it was released, I mentioned that I thought that this could be their big, almost breakthrough record in the same sense that Sunbather was for Death Heaven. Um, in reflection, I don't really think that's the case at all, because this thing is just too bleak and, and too ugly for the masses. You know, that Death Heaven record had a lot of beauty in it. There's none to be found here. I mean, look at the title. We are always alone, right? What do you, what, what do you think you're going to get when you listen to something like that, right? Um, now, that being said, this does have some of the best, well-crafted, kind of heavy, abrasive music songs that I've heard all year. Um, this may not be the crossover record that I thought it could be, but it definitely has the appeal to be one of the defining hits of screamo and power violence and... I mean, it's hard to kind of confine and, and, and pigeonhole this record into one genre because they kind of take all those genres and kind of blend them together into this one really distinct portrayal of guilt sound. Um, and I think having, you know, a defining record of that particular genre maybe even better, really, than having a crossover record. Probably not for sales <laughs> or, you know, infamy, or making money, or whatever it might be, but in terms of respect within the genre, um, it's hard to deny at this point that Portrayal of Guild are the absolute top tier of screamo and hardcore right now. Um, what they've really done with this record is they've taken the kind of patchwork sounds of their early albums, which had a lot of parts that were kind of just pieced together in a way that may not have necessarily made the most sense, but still sounded really cool. And they put a really grand focus on songwriting and production. So instead of being filled with a bunch of short little songs or longer songs that just still kind of really feel like short songs with, um, you know, kind of all bunched together, uh, the songs are really fleshed out here. You know, they they're hit the three, four minute mark. There are, you know, definitive riffs that you can kind of keep a hold of. There are almost melodies at times that your brain latches onto. And all of the really heavy parts are, are done so expertly and precisely that they still stick with you. And it, it's catchy in that weird way that heavy music can be catchy. And I think the greatness of this album really made itself apparent to me when Portrayal of Guilt released their second album of this year back in, um, I think it was November, the album uh, aptly called Christfucker. Um, damn, I just lost my youth Christian audience with that one. Um, 
and that record was was okay but you could kind of tell that it was something they just kind of threw together you know again no problem with that it, it had its moments for sure but what that record really succeeded in doing was kind of showcasing the brilliance behind we're always alone and what really happens when this band puts their minds towards creating a singular whole like a whole album experience and yeah it's just an incredible record was definitely on the top of my album of the year list for at least the first little while of this year just because of how brilliantly it's executed um how good it sounds like the production value of this record is a massive step up from any of their past things which is kind of why i i i thought it might have had that crossover appeal because you know it's dark and dingy as it is it, it sounds like a major label production the the mix is so crisp everything sounds perfectly placed and everything shines through exactly when it does the vocals are just serrated enough to uh you know kind of give you shivers when you listen to them and yeah the whole thing is just just a huge success and unfortunately what holds it back from being that kind of crossover album is just the genre that they're playing into you know screamo power violence that kind of thing you're just never really going to be able to get the attention of more mainstream people with this kind of music because again it is so edgy and dark and abrasive but for those who do appreciate heavier types of music there's no denying the you know genius of what they've done with this record and i really think that heavy music fans of any type of genre can listen to this album and appreciate it for kind of the modern masterpiece that it really is so coming in at number eight is portrayal of guilt with we are always alone Okay, number seven time. So, number seven, we have Serpent with Feet, Deacon. Oh, what a beautiful, fun little record this is. And what a complete contrast to basically everything else that I've talked about uh, so far in this podcast. So, where, you know... We Are Always Alone kind of dwelled and thrived in darkness and Playboy Cardi's misanthropy was just, you know, a huge revelation and Black Metal 2's kind of depressing and defeatist. This record is all about hope and joy and love and acceptance. Um, so what the hell is it doing on this list, Phil? What are you doing listening to this shit? Um, good question. I mean, it is admittedly not the kind of thing that would usually appeal to me. Um, me being, you know, extremely unhopeful and just generally pessimistic about everything. But maybe that's why it appeals to me. Or did appeal to me. Um, 
This record was released early in the year, back when, you know, things were kind of looking pretty bleak, <laughs> much like they are right now. And it was that little kind of sliver of hope and light that I think my life really needed at the time. And it certainly doesn't help that the songs and the production on this record are just absolutely immaculate. The album opens with uh, Hyacinth and just the way that it has to be one of the most brilliant album openings ever. Like the way that the kind of little guitar comes in as the song opens, it literally sounds like daybreak. Like it sounds like the sun coming up over the horizon. And then his soft yearning voice comes in and you just can't help but feel at peace. And like, you know how hard it is to feel at peace these days? So it, it's just a massive accomplishment that Serpent With Feet was able to conjure these emotions in the middle of this pandemic. His music didn't always sound like this too. He, it's been dark, you know, he's kind of mastered that darker trip-hop R&B kind of sound with his previous records. So this was a real shock to hear initially. But it's just so nice to hear, you know? Um, there's a line on the last song of the album, Song Fellowship, where he sings, it's something along the lines of, this is the beauty of my 30s. I'm learning to like worry less and just love more. It, it, that's not the exact line, but that's kind of the the sentiment of what he's saying. And like, wow, what an inspiring thing to hear. Like, I turned 31 this year and I feel old, you know? Especially turning 31 in the second year of a pandemic when for a while there it seemed like maybe things were going to be good, but hey, you know, now we're right back at square one again. Your 30s is rough. Your 30s, especially right now, is kind of like, okay, the fun part of my life is coming to an end and it's ending in like the darkest time period in my lifetime, and in many people's lifetimes, that's for sure. So it's a scary thing. But to hear him say that, it gives me so much hope for what my 30s might have in store, about how my outlook on life and the world might change. And maybe I can get rid of that pessimism a little bit, and maybe I can embrace the light and, and begin to see the hope in things. Um, and he makes it sound like the only thing you really need to do in order to get to that point is to just embrace love to its fullest. Now, this is an album entirely about love and his relationship with, you know, various men in his life. It's so nice to hear an album that speaks or sings, I guess so candidly about you know the gay love experience not in like a like a 
you know, a, a, a campy kind of way, or not in like a... What's the word I'm looking for? Not in like a, oh, like, look at me, like, I'm gay and I'm in love, you know? Um... Which is fine, but he sings about it in, in a very natural way, where he's not necessarily calling attention to the fact that, yes, you know, I'm a gay man and, you know, I, I love the way that everyone else in the other world, in the world loves. It just seems very natural. And it's so nice to hear this album where he's not leaning into his gayness in a way that isn't untasteful, I guess, if that makes sense. Again, it just sounds very natural and organic and like people have been singing about this for decades. I said before that me and my boo wear the same size shoe is probably the cutest, sweetest depiction of queer love that I've ever heard. I stand by it. What a beautiful line from a beautiful song from a beautiful record. Not a lot of these albums come along that serve to just inspire pure joy and contentment you got really got to cherish the ones that do, especially the ones with songs that are as good as the ones as these ones are. Um, it's kind of really the whole package. You can put the song, you can put this album on from start to finish during your family celebrations and none of them will know any different because it just sounds blissful. It has these kind of choir almost gospel-like elements to it that brings a sense of almost religion to black queer love. And, and just so it should. You know, he's really managed to create this really warm experience with this album that can put any restless mind to ease by listening to it. And if you're ever just feeling blue, Put this on and all of your troubles will wash away and you maybe find a little bit of hope in these really dark times. So, coming in at number seven is Serpent with Feet with Deacon. Coming in at number six, we have Spirit of the Beehive with Entertainment Death. Really, really, really cool, interesting album this one is. Um, I was convinced for the longest time that this was going to take my number one spot of the year. Just because I was just so intrigued by everything that I was hearing on this record. Um, I hadn't really heard anything quite like it before and I doubt I will hear anything quite like it ever again. That's just how unique this album is. So what I like about it is it's kind of like unfurling a puzzle. Can you unfurl a puzzle? I don't know. But what they've done with this record is it feels almost like a quilt of musical ideas. Um, that they've stitched together using 
the most bizarre production techniques imaginable as the stitches. Does that make any sense at all? No. Uh, but, you know, a lot about this record doesn't really make a lot of sense at all. Um, that's kind of the whole point. You'll be listening to what appears to be a relatively straightforward, you know, strumming of guitar and singing, and then, you know, everything will kind of collapse and melt away and transform into something entirely different. And then that will kind of transform and mutate into something different as well. And the whole experience would be really jarring and I guess almost unpleasant to listen to, if not for the fact that all the little kind of parts that comprise the kind of patchwork of all these songs are really, really good parts. Like, it almost sounds like this band had, like, I don't want to say a pop record, but something closer to a fairly straightforward indie emo-ish album on their hands, but instead of fleshing those songs out, just took the best parts of each of those songs, recorded them, and then found ways to kind of transition between those parts that were the most kind of unique and off-kilter as possible. So it's like excellent songwriting in the most non-traditional form you can imagine. Like when you think of a good song, you think like, yeah, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, blah, blah, blah. You, you hear the chorus a few times in the song. Um, you get the verse, which verse two is, you know, just a variation of verse one. The bridge is kind of like a different take on the themes and whatnot that the verse and the chorus have already kind of put together, or maybe it's a different key, but it's all still kind of related. Uh, that's not how this music works at all, you know? Like, instead of that, you get maybe three quarters of a verse, and then that changes, and you get like maybe a snippet of what could be a chorus from another song, and that goes to something different. But it's not quite as random as that, because, I mean, they still manage to segment this record into songs and I mean they play them live so they must know what they're doing in some way and a lot of the fun of this record is listening to it and kind of trying to anticipate what's going to come next because that can be pretty hard to do your first few runs through it but you get that really rewarding feeling having listened to it a bunch of times when oh I know what's coming next okay this is going to be the you know, cluttery breakdown part, and then that's gonna go into that kind of sunny, almost swing part. Okay, yeah, right, and that's gonna break down and go into that almost Latin-infused section. Like, figuring the album out is a huge part of the appeal of this process. And again, like the fact that all of the kind of little parts that make up all these songs are, are so good that if they had taken those parts and transformed them into more traditional coherent strong song structures, this would have been a pretty widely appealed, you know, fairly mainstream hit that probably would have gotten a lot of traction 
in more than just kind of the underground DIY blogs that it did get traction in. But they're not content to do that easily. I think the kind of main example of this is the last song, Death, where they kind of eschew their entire formula of, <laughs> I guess, having no formula, and it's a pretty straightforward song, and it is just so gorgeous and beautiful. It's, it's like almost a perfect pop song. So you know that these guys are capable of making music like that. You know if they wanted to, they can make straightforward, accessible, easy to listen to music. But instead, they'd rather hint at that kind of music and disrupt it all with these really baffling production moves to kind of transition between each of them. And it's that kind of, you know, decision to not do things the easy way that really makes this a special record. So coming in at number six, we have Spirit of the Beehive with Entertainment Death. Okay, so let's go and do some song things now, eh? How does that sound? So I'm gonna talk now about my number two song of the year. Just gotta break it up a little bit, give you guys a bit of a breather before we go into the top five, which is, uh, <laughs> I just peed my pants a little bit. Um, okay, so song number two for the year is Celestial Blues by King Woman, title track off that album. Uh, I had a hard time deciding which was going to end up being my number one. It was either this song or the other one, which uh, you'll learn about that a little bit later, I guess. Uh, it, it, it's almost a tie. I give a slight edge to the other one, but I'll have you guys know that it was very, very close. Um, this song encapsulates everything that I love about the Celestial Blues album. Haven't talked about that one yet, have I? I wonder when that's going to show up. It's the ultimate anthem for outsiderism, I think. Uh, it has that grungy, sludgy sound, and lead vocalist Chris, she is singing these lyrics that are fantastical yet grounded in reality kind of the same time. And I think we've all felt that way when we feel like outsiders in a situation. You know, we we kind of look to the sky and wonder like, where am I really from? You know, like where is it that I actually belong because it isn't here. And there are so many great lines in this song that really sum that feeling up. Um, you know, on the bridge you've got they took me for my birthright, you know, the chorus. Um, I mean, plainly said, I'm not from here, that's for certain. I've never felt like a normal person. Uh, I hang my head, I'm not feeling right. I want to ascend until we collide. Like, it's, it's such, it's so classic. It's, uh, to me, like, a song like this, if this had come out in like the 90s when 
Hole kind of had their heyday. I mean, to me, this just sounds like a heavier version of Hole, and this song could have been huge, and this song could have been, like, the anthem for so many teenage girls and, and young women across the nation who are feeling kind of displaced by society, because that's ultimately what this is all about. You know, that's what the Celestial Blues is. It's, it's, it's looking outward for acceptance and home when you don't feel it where you currently are. And, I mean, given these past year and a half, the pandemic, where we've been trapped in our homes, you know, like, is it possible to not feel at home in your own home? I know we've all experienced that over this past little while. We've been confined and we've been, you know, trapped within the walls that surround us. And all we really want is to break free and, and, and get out and get back to that sense of normalcy that we once had, that sense of community and, and togetherness that we once had, but we can't. It's like she says in the song, you know, but I'm stuck right here. And we've all been stuck right here, and we're going to continue to be stuck right here. And all we can really do is look to the sky, you know, look to the heavens and, and wonder, when will this end? When will I be free again? When will I be a part of something again? So that's why this is my number two song of the year. It's also just a kick-ass song. You don't even need to really pay attention to the lyrics. The riff is amazing. Her vocals are killer. Um, the dynamics of the song, the way it just goes from soft to loud like that. Just an utterly fantastic piece of songwriting. But it really hits home given our situation right now. So give it a listen and I'm sure you'll feel the things that I felt when I listened to it because it's just that universal. So coming in at number two song of the year, we have Celestial Blues by King Women. All right, the top five albums of the year, according to uh, me, anyway. You know, there are lots of different opinions out there, but this is mine. So, number five, we have, I'll do a stupid shitty little knee roll for every fucking album now, Eyelet with The Devil Shining Out Your Eyes. I cheated again on this one too, um, because this is another album that technically, technically, technically didn't come out this year. And it was released December 31st of last year. I go by the caveat that it was probably January 1st somewhere when it was released. Also, I included the Playboy Cardi album in here, which came out like more than a week before this new year, so if I'm allowed to do that, then this album is in no problem at all. Although it is kind of weird that two albums in my top 10 didn't even really come out this year. Whatever, doesn't mean anything. So this record to me is the kind of gold standard for heavy music for this year. Um, it has everything that I want in heavy music. It has, 
incredible riffs from start to finish. Um, it has catchy parts non-stop throughout the whole thing. It has um, aggression. It's got some weird parts that are cool and fun and, and makes things interesting throughout the whole thing. It, it just... The, w the way that this record from start to finish transitions from one song to the next to make this whole thing feel like one whole piece of work is, to me, just makes it a perfect record for me. And it's listed as an EP on title, which I have, which I, I, I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's necessarily an EP. I mean, it's like 25 minutes long. Again, same as the Dean Blunt record, same as the Serpent with Feet record. Again, weird kind of trend here that the really short albums are the ones that I like the most. Kind of makes you think a little bit, does it? Um, so we're not saying it's an EP, it's an LP, but it doesn't matter. What it is, it's a fantastic work of heavy music. And I couldn't get over the fact that no one else really seemed to pay any attention to this record all year. Like, the month of January, this is... Well, this in the Portrayal of Guilt record, but this is basically all I listened to for the entire month. Um, I talked about Unborn, the song, in the last podcast episode. I probably listened to that song alone at least a hundred times in January alone. And every time I come back to this album, which is very frequently... <laughs> very frequently, I'm always just blown away by how expertly put together the whole thing is. It has sounds of just about every heavy music genre you can think of, you know? There's there's some sludge metal, there's even some post-rock in there, there's some emo, there's some doom, there's hardcore. It really speaks to the idea that heavy music as a genre, you know, you can fiddle around and twiddle with all of these subgenres all you want, but they all boil down to, you know, trying to achieve that one central emotion and that one big effect. And the fact that they so liberally pick different subgenres and throw them all together in this melting pot of influences and create something that sounds so seamless from start to finish really shows you the power that heavy music has. I mean, there's not a lot of genres out there that you can make what ultimately sounds like one 25-minute long song using every subgenre under the fucking sun and make it sound so complete and concise and whole. And just so listenable, too. Um, it's one of those albums that as soon as it's done, it's just short enough that you kind of just want to put it back on again and listen to it all over again. And that's, again, certainly what I did for most of the first month of this year. Um, am I including this album because of so high on my list? Because I'm kind of baffled by the fact that I haven't really seen it mentioned anywhere else online, like, at all this year? Maybe. You know, maybe a little bit of that. Maybe, you know, I kind of like the idea that 
you know, I'm introducing these guys to people when no one else has, you know, giving them a little bit of shine when no one else was bothering. But I really do think that this is the best heavy music album of the year. And people just need to start paying attention to this band. I had no idea they existed before this came out. And now I'm just completely obsessed with them. So I lit. Uh, hopefully you guys are out there and listening to this. Your album was amazing, okay? I'm acknowledging you, all right? You've been acknowledged. You've been validated. So please keep going because this shit fucking rules. Coming in at number five, I lit with the devil shining out your eyes. Coming in at number four, we have Ice Age with Seek Shelter. So, what do I even say about this? Ice Age has had one of the most fascinating trajectories of any rock band of the past little while. I mean, they started out as teenage punks making really you know, post-punk, hardcore-inspired punk music, but that didn't last very long at all, you know? By the time their second record, You're Nothing, came around, they were already introducing kind of strange, abstract influences into their music. And again, they were still very young at that point, probably 18 or so. And then they did a complete 180 with Plowing Into the Field of Love, which was almost country music-inspired. And then they, they, they did another 180 with Beyondless, which I wasn't that into, if I'm being honest, so I can't really tell you what, what that album really sounded like. It just wasn't really for me that much. And at that point, I, I kind of gave up on them, but this record has just brought me right back into the fold 400%. Um, I have no qualms with saying that this is Ice Age's best record and, in my opinion, the best rock album released this year. So while Ice Age has always been kind of, you know, playing with darkness and mystique and almost like spookiness in their music, this album embraces community and, and, and hope. And, and almost forgiveness in ways that you would have never really expected this band to do. I mean, you think back on their first few records, New Brigade, You're Nothing, and then you listen to this and you're like, damn, like these guys went to therapy. Um, it's so nice to hear Elias not moaning about being a chauvinistic alcoholic anymore, you know? He sounds like someone that you actually want to hang out with and not just bang the shit out of. I love you, Elias. Um, oh God, he's so hot. Uh, I remember I saw Ice Age in Ottawa way back in the day. This must have been 2014 or 2015. And they're playing this kind of almost like warehouse show. And this was right after Plowing had come out and I was like, I fucking love that record, right? And I remember seeing them, and I was so excited to see them, but they scared the shit out of me. 
they had this kind of vibe to them that was almost really dangerous and like you didn't want to get too close because you didn't really know what they were gonna do um this really unpredictable air to them i mean again i was young and dumb and i didn't let that stop me i just wanted to uh <laughs> you know hang out and party with those guys regardless but now they kind of seem like the kind of guys you wouldn't mind being around and, and grabbing a drink with. I mean, there's still some fairly bleak songs on the record. Um, particularly fucking career highlight, The Holding Hand, last song. Um, but the vibe's different now. They, they, they seem older, wiser, more mature, and more just like kind of relaxed. And I mentioned Britpop already in this podcast, but that's the main touch point for what you're listening to when you listen to this Ice Age record. They've embraced huge guitars and, and wall of sound and very pop-like melodies, and it's resulted in the, you know, the easiest listening, catchiest collection of songs that Ice Age has ever made. And this kind of feels like the band they've always meant to be. You know, even in their early records, um, when they were more or less just a straight-up punk band, you could tell there was aspirations to be something bigger than that. And this is where they finally, finally get there. You know, they had their kind of... I don't want to say growing pains, but... You know, going from New Brigade to... You're nothing, and then plowing in the field of love, and then beyondless. It was almost as though they were striving at a level of songwriting and grandeur that they couldn't, they weren't quite ready yet to get there. But I mean, from the first opening few seconds of this album, you know they're there now, you know? These guys are absolute rock gods, and they're making music that sounds like it. Like, this sounds like the record of a band five albums into their career, and they're still super young. Um, so that's super exciting. And I remember just, you know, I saw them again in Toronto a few years after that, and they all seemed so miserable and dejected, and it sounded like, sounded like and looked like none of them really wanted to be there, and I was positive they were going to break up after that. It doesn't really seem like that anymore. I mean... They're still brooding in all the videos. They all look grumpy as hell. But every now and then there's, there's some smiles being cracked. And there's more people in the videos than just them now. Like for, you know, lead song, Shelter Song, uh, first song of the album, lead single. The camera focuses on them, but there's also so many other people in the video as well and the video is really about these people loving each other and embracing each other and, and coming together and that's what you hear on this album it's an album of community it's an album of you know working together and and you know it's an album that you want to be surrounded by your friends and just yelling out and singing along to um it's just, it's so good. And the last stretch of songs on this album has to be the finest stretch of songs of the year, for sure. 
Uh, last four songs, when it goes from Gold City, which is... I mean, I don't know how it didn't end up on my top five songs of the year. I, I'm probably fucked up, because... Incredible song. And it goes into uh, that St. Cecilia song. And then you got the Wider Powder Blue, and that ends with the Holding Hand. It's just like, what a one, two, three, four punch. You just want to listen to it again and again and again. And all the other songs before are great too, but... Those last four songs really, really solidifies this to me as the best Ice Age record and one of the absolute best records of the year. Um, I am so glad that these guys figured it out and have come together to release yet another amazing piece of music because, you know, I feel like they finally got to where they want to be with this album. And Elias, uh, text me anytime, please. So, coming in at number four is Ice Age with Seek Shelter. Now, coming in at number three, we have Makami with Pray for Haiti. Uh, easily the hip-hop album of the year. I don't think there's any debate anywhere um Makami is an interesting guy mysterious guy no one's really sure who he is but he's a kind of tangential uh member of the Griselda crew in New York and this record was I believe executive produced by West Side Gun the kind of mastermind behind the whole thing and he appears all over this record and it really goes to show you the power of what happens when you have unhinged creativity mixed with, you know, someone who knows how to exercise restraint and kind of hold it all together. So, Makami released two other albums this year. He had the, uh, that EP... I forget what it's called. And uh, another full length that came out not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, Balance Cho. But it was missing something. And that something is West Side Gun. Um, West Side had his own album out this year, but I feel like for his own projects, he's a lot less willing to exercise restraint because the West Side Gun project was too... It was a double album with each each one being like 20 songs long. Like, come on, man. Ain't nobody got time for that. But the way that this album, Pray for Haiti, kind of balances Makami's really, really individualistic take on hip-hop mixed with um, West Side Gun's kind of savvy for creating really solid products of hip-hop makes it, again, just easily the hip-hop album of the year. What I find really cool about this album is it's it's really weird. Like, there are no real traditional song structures on here. Maybe a few of the cuts have a somewhat recognizable structure, but mostly it's it's kind of these abstract type beats in Mac Homie just kind of going in on them and 
that could be boring if not for the fact that the beat selection on this record is absolutely incredible and just really serves to thematically tie the whole thing together and how compelling of an artist Makami actually is. So he has Haitian roots which he leans into very very heavily in his music and that results in him you know, bursting out in patois at any given time. Um, sorry, bursting out into Creole at any given time. Um, kind of switching between French and English whenever he kind of feels like it. And injecting a almost Haitian sense of melody and humor into the whole thing. Makami is low-key a very good singer, as we get to kind of hear multiple times throughout this album and he's obviously very capable of crafting a great hook uh so what i predict is going to happen is we're going to see him blow up next year uh we've already seen him feature on a new Catronata song where he just sounds right at home over a kind of house beat and his ear for melody and his very unique inventive style of rapping is just prime for mainstream appeal. So keep your eye on this guy because I'm positive next year, maybe the year after that, um, he's going to break out in the mainstream and we're going to see him everywhere. But for now, we need to cherish this time because, again, this is a fairly experimental record. Um with him just going off over some very strange beats. All that sound amazing though. And him doing different rhyme schemes and structures that uh, are kind of hard to wrap your head around at first. He has a voice that really reminds me of uh, Mos Def or Yasin Bey as he's known now. In that it's kind of like nasally and um, it can almost sound kind of like bratty at times you know he'll do it he has a particular cadence that he often goes into where it's kind of like that sing song like ha ha cadence um but it just sounds really good and he's obviously completely mastered his craft and the album is intercut with uh sections of west side gun rapping and what that does is it serves to tie the whole thing together and make it feel like a really complete work with Westside acting as kind of our guide through the album. The whole thing, again, immaculately put together, some of the best raps, some of the best bars. Uh, he's really funny, he, it, but it's really low key. It's not in your face funny. It's you're, you'll be listening to it and he'll say something and you'll be like, Wait, what did he just say? Did he actually just say that? And you'll rewind it and you listen again and you kind of chuckle to yourself and you kind of like make a mental note of that for the next time you hear it. And that happens, like you listen to the record over and over again, you pick up on more of these little things. Like at one point he, uh, he claims to uh, put other rappers onto rhyming, which is just hilarious. The whole album is full of little moments like this that kind of make you just shake your head and be like, wait, what was that? What just happened? Can, can you repeat that, please? He's, again, got an excellent taste for melody, great singer, great rapper, great bars, 
And I truly, truly believe that we're going to see a lot more of this guy in more mainstream settings once he decides that he's done with his kind of playfulness and experimental nature. But for now, we just got to enjoy it and embrace it because he's probably not going to make a record as good as this one again. So, coming in at number three, easily hip-hop record of the year. That's objective, folks. Makami with Pray For Haiti. Number two. We're getting there, folks. We're almost there. Number two, we have... Lingua Ignata with Sinner Get Ready. All caps, please. Whew, this is a... This is a, This is a heavy one to talk about. So... There are kind of two important things to talk about when you talk about this record. We'll call it... <laughs> The enjoyment of this record by me and by, you know, Lingua Ignata fans everywhere is kind of split into do, uh, two distinct timelines. So the timeline being when the record was released up until about a month ago and then a month ago up until now. So let's talk about the first timeline first, all right? So. What genre even is this record? I have no idea at all. Um, if you think you know, please holler at me. Let me know what it is because I have no idea. I mean, what she did was she went to the kind of Bible belt of America and wanted to create a record that used a lot of very traditional Appalachian instruments. So the sounds that you hear on this album are almost at times they sound ancient. You know, there's there sure there's synths and piano, but mostly I mean I don't even know what the instruments that she's playing on this album are. And to kind of continue that theme the songs themselves draw on a lot of old traditional style song structures and, and, and specific melodies that don't really come from the pop music world. If anything, this record has more grounded influence in religious music than anything. and. That's what this record is all about at the end of the day. So, uh, we saw Kanye West try to bring religious music and gospel to the mainstream a few times already. Probably his most successful attempt at it was this year with Donda. Um, but as we all know, Donda is a huge flaming piece of shit and uh, just kind of sucks. What Lingua Ignata, or Kristen Hader, as she's actually known, 
her government, if you will, has done is she's also tried to bring religious music into, you know, the kind of modern world of experimental music, but not in a, like, you know, shove your nose in Jesus kind of way. Religious music and gospel and, you know, the Bible itself are used as reference points and building blocks to create these narratives and these these really fascinating songs um, that that deal with Christianity. The whole kind of conceit of the record is it was her kind of take on the Bible Belt and what you know fundamental Christianity does to people. Uh, it's interspersed with clips of you know different pastors, but instead of you know, talking about your standard biblical stuff, you know, it's maybe clips of these pastors doing something more scandalous or talking about something controversial. And the whole idea is kind of showcasing the dark underbelly of Christianity, especially in, you know, the hardcore right-wing Bible Belt of America. And she kind of takes on this, I guess it's a character. I know that she does have, you know, Christian roots, but she takes on this character of this, this Christian person who seems to be consumed by her faith in a very dangerous way. And it doesn't come across at all as like anti-Christian, okay? This isn't like, you know, religion is bad, blah, blah, blah. It's more just like a kind of objective study of what having these really hardcore fundamental beliefs can do to someone. And though, again, the way that she's used these traditional instruments and, and, and melodies and structures really brings the whole thing to life in this really cinematic way. It's almost like watching a movie unfold before your eyes, except uh, obviously with your ears. What her previous albums have always been great, but hard to listen to. Uh, she used to play more of noise-based, synth-based kind of uh really aggressive, violent music. And there's not a lot of, I'll say, aggression on this record, but it still feels really heavy and dark because of, again, the subject matter, her absolutely spine-tingling voice. You know, she's, she's classically trained, and she uses that to every extreme you can fathom. And just, like, it just feels heavy, you know? It doesn't sound heavy, per se, but it feels heavy. And on the note of it feeling heavy, I want to go back to the timeline of it all. So, I guess a big reason why it feels so heavy, and later 
we know why it feels so heavy is because about a month ago now, she released a statement detailing these absolutely horrific allegations of abuse against her former boyfriend, uh, daughter's frontman, Alexis Marshall. And apparently this entire record is kind of her way of processing all that and her way of talking about the abuse without really talking about it. Again, the record had been out for a few months before uh, these allegations have come out. And knowing that that's really what this album is about recontextualizes the whole thing in a really horrifying way. You hear the lyrics she's singing and while you could definitely tell there was conviction in them before, when you hear her say things like, he must die, just do it, or, you know, the heart of man is, I forget the lyric, but it's not good. It really all just starts to make sense and you piece together what's actually going on here. And again, the record just takes on this whole new devastating light which absolutely adds to the experience and makes it that much more compelling and captivating. But once you kind of know what she had been through, what this man had done to her, and how she translated all that into these songs, makes it... I don't want to say, like, a special experience, because I don't want to act like those things that happened to her made the record better in any way because what she went through no one should ever ever have to go through but having that context just makes you appreciate the power of this record even more again this probably would have been close to my album of the year before i knew all this i remember talking about this album on the podcast the month that it came out and it was my album of the month that year and, I, and that month sorry and i remember saying this probably will be my album of the year for the whole year because of how powerful it is and i didn't even know about the abuse at that time in the context behind this whole record so it just goes to show you what an incredibly powerful impactful piece of music this is uh, she's at the absolute top of her game of the experimental music world and no one's close to touching her so coming in at number two is lingua ignata with sinner get ready finally folks we're here we're doing it the number one album of the year, according to Phil May here at PH5. The album is Celestial Blues by King Woman. Uh, not the song, the actual album. We already kind of talked about the song before. So why is this my album of the year? Well, I just loved it the most. 
I mean, I think objectively speaking, if you want to go that route, Sinner Get Ready is probably objectively the better record. But I loved this record the most of anything that I heard this year. The way that Chris Esfandiari, I, I apologize if I said that wrong, uh, has crafted this record and the songs contained in it, it just speaks to me like nothing else has. I've already talked about how the title track is, you know, the perfect ode and anthem for outsiderism. The whole thing kind of applies to the entire record. Um, there's so much tension and frustration and, you know, just depression almost across this album. So many of these emotions that I've been feeling, that I know all of us have been feeling, is it's all over this record and she's done an amazing job at encapsulating all these emotions into these incredible songs. This is, I'm gonna call it again, a heavy grunge album. You know, I said that the Eyelid album was, you know, my favorite heavy music album of the year and I stand by that because while there are certainly metal influences on this record. I truly believe it to be more of a pop album than a metal album. You know, it's it's pop music based on the foundation of heavy music. And that's kind of what I always thought grunge was, you know? Um, pop via heavy, if that makes any sense. And grunge is an interesting genre to me because I really feel like that's what's next. I, I feel like if you look at the way the mainstream is going right now, we're slowly building back towards grunge being a really popular style of music, a really popular kind of fashion, if you will. Um, you know, everything's cyclical. We're all on this giant pendulum of society swinging back and forth all the time and that's where we're going and I really believe as I've said many times that women are going to be leading the charge of rock music becoming the most popular genre in western civilization again maybe this record will end up being a touch point for that kind of renaissance that I'm positive is going to happen. We've already, we're already seeing it happen. Um, but this might be the one to kind of spur more people to create heavier versions of that rock music and, you know, be the next hole. Although I think King Woman has that title on lock for sure. So again, what's really cool about this album is it takes that foundational style of metal and it creates these extremely catchy songs that don't sacrifice any of their emotional weight for that catchiness. Um, again, title track, one of the best songs of the year, far and away. Um, definitely favorite song on the album. 
but that one really kind of encapsulates everything that Chris and King Woman have succeeded so well in doing on this album. Again, I already talked about the song, so I won't do that again. But then you move on to the next song, uh, Morning Star, which is again another great pop song that's basically about Lucifer falling from the heavens. Like, very literally, that's what it's about. And you have a song like Bogues, which is just crushingly heavy, while again being catchy as hell at the same time. About halfway through the record, you have Psychic Wound, which is just a ridiculously sexy song, um, while still being heavy and, you know, based around a riff and, and like, no one is really cr making that bridge between accessible music and heavy music the way that this band is and the way Chris Esfandaria is doing anymore. But that's going to change. Uh, remember MTV Headbangers Ball? You know, remember when bands like Soundgarden ruled the charts? This is the way I truly think it's going to be in the future. Except instead of it being a male-dominated sphere like it was back then, it's going to be women. And this record has the potential to be that kind of touch point where we finally see the underground coming into the mainstream. And this record could do that if enough people hear it because it does really have that perfect combination of heaviness and accessibility to it. And again, it's just so emotional. The the kind of closing salvo of the last two songs have her wrenching her heart out for you on record so much to the point where the last song is barely even a whisper because you can tell that she's just so done at this point that that's all that she can muster up and in a year where life was hard and we had to muster up everything that we can you know, there's a level of embracing defeat on this record that really spoke to me and I'm sure would speak to a lot of people. You know, because sometimes it's okay to feel like you just can't do it and enough isn't enough and that you, you don't belong. And in a weird way, having that kind of solidarity and knowing that there are other people out there that feel that way Gives you, the, gives you the strength to rise above that and just be better than it. So for all those reasons, not to mention the fact that the thing is just immaculately produced, all of the songs are pristine, it, this is my record of the year, for sure. And I just want to give a big shout out to uh, Chris Esfandari and the band for making this amazing music. It, it, it got me through some, you know, tough times. I listened to that title track so many times when I was feeling down this year. And it, did it make me feel better? No, but it didn't make me feel as alone, you know? Knowing that other people are out there 
alone, just like you are, almost makes it not alone, if that makes sense. So, coming in at number one album of the year is King Woman Celestial Blues. But wait, not quite done yet, because I still have to talk about my number one song of the year. So let's just do that, and then let's call it, because I'm looking here and I've gone over 90 minutes. Uh, wow. My bad. Um, I think you can probably kind of hear it in my voice a little bit at this point. So, number one song of the year for me is... Our Distress Entwined by Wrist Meat Razor. Do you guys remember when I talked about this album back in the day? I think it was like maybe an honorable mention or like number five on June or July or something like that. The album is pretty good. Um, I don't even remember what it was called, so obviously... It didn't leave that much of an impact on me, but this song, holy fucking shit. So it's the first song on the record, and I barely even got to the rest of the album because I would just put this on repeat for literally days on end. It was all I really wanted to listen to for huge stretches of time. It's ostensibly a metalcore song, so what the hell is this kind of snotty metalcore song doing as my number one song of the year. As always, folks, it's about context, right? So this year saw me after, geez, almost seven years of working my way up in the marketing industry, becoming, you know, Mr. Mr. Office guy, uh, abandoning all that and going back to my roots and you know trying to get an education in audio engineering which I did and in order for me to properly do that I had to let go of a lot of misgivings about myself and about who I was so I was being inauthentic for a long time I was being Mr. You know, button-up shirts and pants. <laughs> I mean, I'm still Mr. Pants, don't get me wrong. But I was kind of lying to myself about who I was as I tried to traverse the world of marketing. And when that world shafted me and kind of left me out in the cold, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was lying about myself. And that's not who I really am. This song is, to me, about me fully embracing who I was and having who I was come to terms with who I am now. This song sounds exactly like something I would have listened to in 2006. It's that chuggy metalcore with the, the screaming and then the kind of soaring melodic emo-ish chorus with the breakdown 
I would have eaten this shit up in 2006. But that's the kind of music that, for a long time, in my 20s and whatnot, I was kind of embarrassed of, and embarrassed by who I was and the fact that I loved that kind of music, you know? I wanted to be known and seen as more mature, and I wanted what I listened to to reflect that. So, leaving all that behind, ditching that, and fully coming to terms with the fact that I can enjoy the things that I enjoyed when I was young, even to this day, and, and even have that integrated into my current, you know, 31-plus-year-old life, was a huge revelation for me. And the biggest, well, not the biggest, obviously, but one of the huge steps on kind of a metaphorical scale was just learning to embrace how much I loved this song. This is something that even five years ago or so, I would have sneered at. It wouldn't have listened to it at all, let alone given it a chance. I mean, the name Wrist Meat Razor, you know, you get a look at you know, the, the image of this band, and you know, they all have like the scene haircuts and all this kind of stuff. It's a it's an identity and an image and a sound that I'd long abandoned. But the fact of the matter is, in abandoning that, I was abandoning who I was. So this song to me is about embracing who I was and having who I was become who I am now. If you can enjoy music like this in your 30s, maybe youth is just an idea, something that you can kind of pull from, a well that you can draw from. And age doesn't mean anything. Pretty, pretty highbrow philosophical stuff for this kind of silly metalcore song, but that's what it did to me. Those are the things that made me feel, and it really helped me just come to terms with being okay with who I was and, and how I can be. So, it's also just a kick-ass song, you know? There's no way you're not going to hear that chorus and not be like, yeah, like, like you're going to sing along with it. I don't care who you are or what you like. So, coming in at number one song of the year, Our Distress Entwined by Wrist Meat Razor. Okay, whew, that was a marathon run. And wow, okay. We did it though, it's over. I just condensed 12 podcasts, probably close to 15 hours worth of talking, blah, 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 into one fucking list. And wow, what a bittersweet feeling, you know? Because now it's that weird time of the year where you kind of finished going back and listening to all the old albums from this year that you enjoyed and trying to determine where they land in, in the scheme of things of your year-end stuff. And you're just kind of like waiting for the new year for new stuff. I find I listen to a lot of, you know, really old music during this time because I'm too busy listening to new shit during the regular year that this is kind of the only chance I have to go back. So 
I'm excited. You know, I'm probably gonna listen to some Deftones. Um, probably that's about it. Yeah, probably just listen to a lot of Deftones. Anyway, guys, thanks for sticking with me. Um, if you actually made it to the end of this episode, congratulations. Uh, I barely made it, and I'm the one actually doing it. It's been an amazing, amazing season. Uh, first year of doing podcasts. Lots of learnings, lots of challenges. But, you know, I, I think it's gotten better overall. I hope so. I hope it hasn't gotten worse. I'm going to stop rambling now. Go and enjoy your night, your life. Please stay safe. Go get your booster shot if you can fucking find a way to do so. And thank you again so, so much for tuning in. PH5 will return in the new year. <laughs>